We are finishing this morning our series on the Psalms, and the subtitle of that series has been The Lyrics of Knowing God. The Psalms are a songbook, the hymn book of the people of God to teach them how to know Him and how to worship Him. This morning we're looking at Psalm 2. It's there in your order of worship if you'd like to read along with me. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Father, we do thank you for our time this morning, and we would ask that you would give us your spirit that we might see and believe and love your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. In his book, 1776, David McCullough tells a story about the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Now, on paper, it was a war that the Americans should have lost. Um, We had no standing army, very few resources. We were little more than a collection of outnumbered, untrained state militias who had joined together, going against the greatest military force on the planet at that time, the British Army. After the British seized New York in the fall of 1776, they they chased the Americans into New Jersey. And then, as was customary at the time, they broke for the winter. They took the winter off. They took December off. And they bunkered there, down there in Trenton, New Jersey. The next scene is a familiar one probably for many of you. You recognize it in paintings, maybe some stories that you've heard. On Christmas Day, December the 25th of 1776, General George Washington led his troops across the Delaware River, and he surprised the British there at Trenton, and there he won one of the most important battles of the war. You may not know what happens next, though. No Christmas break for his troops. He immediately marched them to Trenton, excuse me, to Princeton, New Jersey, and once again, the British were unsuspecting, and so he routed them there as well. At a time when most generals were content to sit high atop a distant hill somewhere and overlook the battle, Washington actually fought side by side with his men. Arguably the most important man in the country at that time was there in the thick of the battle, fighting alongside of them. The sight of Washington next to them compelled one soldier to write this in a letter home. He wrote, I shall never forget what I felt. When I saw him brave all the dangers of the field, and his important life, as it were, hanging by a single hair, 
with a thousand deaths flying all around him. Believe me, in that moment, I thought not of myself. It's a great picture, isn't it? Heroic leader, a legend, alongside his people, modeling sacrifice for them in such a way that they wanted to chart that course for themselves. A leader matters to his people, does he not? A leader matters to the morale, to the hope, to the well-being of those whom he or she has been given to lead. It's true of generals. It's true of moms and dads. It's true of supervisors. It's true of kings. And Israel certainly believed that leaders mattered. She believed it enough that she was not afraid to bring her own political concerns into the sanctuary with her. Why? Because she believed the sanctuary was the place where she could make sense of all of life. You see, for her, all of reality was welcome in the sanctuary, in the place of worship. If you read the Psalms, 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They're not cheers. They're Psalms of sadness, Psalms of joy, Psalms of circumstances. Everything came into the sanctuary to be lifted up to God, to be sorted out. I think it's important for us to recognize as we leave the Psalms for a bit at least, this reality from the Psalms, that knowing God will actually take you deeper into your own life and not away from it. We don't ask you to check things at the door, your life at the door when you come in here to worship Him. Knowing Him will actually take you deeper into the reality of your own sadness and chaos and confusion, the circumstantial realities around us. It will take you deeper into that life and not away from it. It's the only way you can make sense of it. The psalm we read this morning, Psalm 2, is a royal psalm. There are about 10 or so royal psalms in the Psalter, and royal psalms are essentially about politics, Mm, right? (laughs) The intersection of politics and spirituality uh, with the people of God. There are psalms about the nature of true power, the nature of true leadership, the nature of true community and true submission. And just in case you're thinking that this is just really an Old Testament reality, in the New Testament, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, also a royal psalm, a political psalm, are the two most referenced psalms in all of the New Testament. Why? Because leaders matter. Leaders matter. For better or for worse, a leader matters to the morale, to the well-being, to the hope of the people whom he or she has been given to lead. And people everywhere are looking for the right leader. I want us to explore that a little bit more this morning together. Just so you know, this is a psalm of hope. The occasion for this particular song is the enthronement of God's king, not a man who is elected, but a man appointed to be God's ruler for his people. And three things I want us to look at this morning as we move along through this particular psalm. The first is this. Why is it that we need a ruler in the first place? What does the psalm say about our condition that demands leadership? Why do we need to be led? Second, what is God's response? What kind of leader does God actually provide for us? And then finally, I want us to to think about some brief reflections on what all of this means for our calling as Christians. 
What does it mean to be a church? How are we to engage the world under the man that God has given to lead us? Let's take those in order, okay? First is this, the condition of the nations. Look at me at verse 1. The psalmist looks out at the world. This is what he says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So if you're just reading this psalm by itself, the nations almost all the time in the Old Testament refers to the Gentiles. It was the non-church people. But when, when Peter quotes this psalm in Acts 4, he specifically says the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So when Peter looks out and he takes this psalm on to understand what Jesus is doing, he says, look, this is the whole world, the churched and the unchurched. All of humanity alike. What is our condition? The psalmist says we're angry. We are an angry world. Have you ever noticed that before? Have you noticed that for all of our technological advances over the years, we have done very little to subdue human rage. Wars break out all over the globe. People shoot each other, some for vengeance, some just because their anger needs a target. Political leaders are encouraged to ride the anger of the people. We live in an angry world with angry leaders, and the psalmist gives us a theological rationale for that anger in verses 2 through 3. There he writes, the kings of the earth set themselves in the The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Why are we angry? Well, the psalmist says we're angry because we are rebels. We are angry because there is an authority over us, a natural authority over us that we do not trust. God's ways, God's boundaries, God's restraints, we look at them and say, they're so unfair. They're cruel. They're harsh. They're oppressive. Let us be our own gods. And finally, we'll be happy. Do you know that's the first lie ever recorded in the Bible? The devil comes to Adam and Eve who have been restrained from one thing... (laughs) from eating of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and the devil looks at them and says, oh, that's so unfair. That's so cruel. That's so harsh. Throw off his bonds. Let us burst his cords. And then you'll be free. You'll be like him. You'll be your own gods. And finally, you'll be happy. Evil's great illusion. Do you know what Hosea 11.4 says about the authority of God in your life? Hosea 11.4 says this, that God leads you with cords of compassion and with bonds of love. The next time that you think God's authority is cruel and harsh and oppressive, speak the words of Hosea 11.4 to you, that God himself is leading you with cords of compassion and bonds of love. Do you know what the invitation of Jesus Christ is for you this morning in Matthew 11? He says, are you tired? (laughs) Come to me, all who feel burdened and who are heavy and who are exhausted, and I will give you rest. And how does Jesus say that he intends to give us rest? He says, take my yoke upon you, that is my cords, because my yoke is easy and my bonds are light. 
And what Jesus teaches us and what God is teaching us is that his authority is not harsh, it's not cruel, it's not oppressive. It is the way of compassion and love and rest for you. That to live in obedience to God is to live in the fullness of human capacity. It is to be free. It is to be free. And yet we are filled with rage because we have believed the lie. We have believed the lie that there really is freedom and happiness apart from God. So the psalmist says we've, we've risen up. And I want you to notice next what God's response is in verse 4. I love this line. The first line of verse 4, if you haven't, look at there with me. It says, he who sits in heaven breaks out in a cold sweat. He who sits in heaven with all the power of the world scheming against him, rising up in rebellion against him, he who sits in heaven is wringing his hands wondering what to do next. He who sits in heaven, what? He laughs. You ever wrestled with little kids before? Maybe you have kids right now. Maybe you have neighbors or nephews or something. Um, I have three boys, nine, seven, and five. That's the entirety of my life. Whatever it starts out as, it always ends as wrestling, right? You wrestle with little kids, it's so cute. You stir them up, you get them going, they get excited like, like hornets revolving around a nest. And the cute thing about it is they are so fierce and so committed and so serious, you can see it on their faces, they think they have a chance, right? Uh, their self-belief is so outlandish that it's funny. Until one of them lands a, a cheap shot to a place of vulnerability, and then it's not funny anymore, right? If you've been there, it's not cute anymore. What is the picture here in Psalm 2? The psalmist says that the powers of the world are like little kids. They're planning and they're scheming and they intend to rise up against him, and yet God is not at all bothered. When the leaders of the world make decisions around us, it affects us. We feel it. We're bothered by it. God, God is not. He is not nervous. But neither is he passive. Notice what he does. Verses 5 through 9, it says he installs his own ruler, okay? He names this ruler as a king, as his son, in fulfillment of all the promises that he made to the greatest king in Israel's history, to David. And then he tells this son to do something that is incredibly forward and incredibly ambitious. He says, ask, ask something of me. Ask me for a gift, and when you ask me for a gift, don't go small. Ask me for the whole of what is mine. Ask me for the entire world. And here in Psalm 2, God promises that once the Son makes that request, that God will endow him with the power to do what? What does it say? To break the nations with a rod of iron and to dash them in pieces like clay. That is strong imagery to say that when, when the Son asks for this, God is going to give him all authority in heaven on earth to conquer the rebellion of the world. Which is exactly what you would expect, right? It's business as usual. In a contest between two powers, irreconcilable powers, those two powers fight it out. They're two sides not backing down. And those two sides go at it until one of the sides overtakes the other. The stronger overtakes the weaker, the mighty devours what is his by force. Isn't that how you read the psalm this morning? Look at it again. By the force of his power, 
Yahweh will subjugate the nations to himself by the sheer force of who he is. So it's hard to blame someone like Peter. In the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the angry crowd comes to arrest Jesus, and Jesus looks at Judas, whom he has loved, and he asks Judas, would you betray the son with a kiss? It's the language of, of Psalm 2. Kiss the son. And Judas goes over and he kisses the son, not in an act of homage, but a betrayal. But have no worry, Jesus has this loyal gang by his side. And they see what's going on and they say, look, it's game time. Here's the question they ask, Lord, shall we now strike with the sword? It's time. And Peter, too impatient to wait on an answer, he takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He is ready to go. He is ready to break the nations with a rod of iron. You know, it's hard to blame Peter because Peter was a child who had sung Psalm 2 in the sanctuary since he was a little boy. And he understood the psalm just like we do. This is business as usual. The stronger devours the weaker. The mighty always takes what is his by force. Yet something unexpected happens in the scene. Jesus tells Peter to put down the sword. And then he walks over to the servant of the high priest, his enemy, the angry crowd, and he touches the ear of that servant and he heals him. Why? Because while it's true that God has always intended to conquer the world's rebellion by the power of his leader, God never intended to do it first by the sword. He intended to do it first by love. By a consummate act of a leader who would give himself as a sacrifice in service, in salvation to the very ones who were rebelling against him. You see, here's the twist that Peter never saw coming. It wouldn't be by force that the Son would conquer the nations. It would be by grace. By grace, the Son would be God's conquering response to a world that is angry, that lives in rebellion against Him. And why is that? I mean, just, I don't know, this may be a wrong thing for you to do, but just put yourself in the place of God for a moment. I hope I'm not tempting you in the wrong direction. I mean, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be quicker and cleaner the other way? Jesus could summon the legions of angels, the armies of heaven to come back, to come down. He could own the world any way that he wanted to. Why not the sword? It's because God has always wanted something more than a broken will. God has always been after a transformed heart. And those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still, as the old saying goes. But those who have been gripped by love, those who have been gripped by mercy and sacrifice and grace, they are conquered in a far deeper and more lasting way. In a way that makes their, their wills actually come alive. And to believe that the one who lives in authority over them, rules them, leads them with cords of compassion and with bonds of love. What is God's response to a world enraged against him? It is not the stronger crushing the weaker. It is the stronger serving the weaker. 
It is the enthronement of a son who is to be made a sacrifice to pacify the rage that exists between us and God. And we wonder that sounds great in theory, doesn't it? (laughs) Does grace really have that kind of power in our relationships? Let me tell you a story that was helpful for me. It's from an ESPN documentary. They have a, a series called 30 for 30. And this one was called One Night in Vegas. Something you probably didn't expect to hear in the sanctuary this morning. So the documentary was about the relationship between Mike Tyson and Tupac. Something you probably didn't expect to hear either. Because Tupac is dead, they interviewed several people who had been close to him throughout his life. And one of the people they interviewed was the author, the poet Maya Angelou. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, Maya Angelou was one of the most important, iconic poets of uh, the last century. Like Tupac, she was also an African-American, but but really she was almost the polar opposite of him in every other way. So Tupac is one of the iconic gangsters of the 1990s, and Maya Angelou, one of the iconic poets, very prim, very proper, I mean, is an intellectual, sounds like an intellectual. So they met when they were both working on a 1993 film together called Poetic Justice, and here's how they met. These are her words. Dr. Angelo said that um, she had never heard of, uh, of Tupac or Sixpac before. She thought that was funny. She laughed. That's, you know, you can laugh with her for a moment. She walked out of her trailer one morning, and she heard a person cursing, she said, using such words. I mean, I'd heard them before, but never in such combination. And she said, he didn't even stop when he saw me. So the next morning, she came out again, and Tupac and another guy were arguing. They were about to go at it, about to fight, angry at each other. And she said they were using some, the most vile language. And so one black man of age grabbed the other guy. And Dr. Angelo, now imagine, she's in her mid-60s at this point, grabs Tupac. She pulls him over to the side, and she says, excuse me, young man. And he's foaming at the mouth. He's angry. He wants to get back in the ring. Excuse me, young man. And this is what she said next to him. When was the last time anyone told you that it's all for you? That we have lived 300 years on the edge of a dime so that you can exist. When is the last time? Do you know that we stood on slave ships and decks and auction blocks and were hosed down like dogs just so that you could live? When was the last time someone reminded you of that? And she said Tupac listened and he began to weep. Dr. Angelou said, I put my arm around his waist and I took him over to a ditch away from the people where I took out my handkerchief and I wiped away his tears from his cheeks with my own hands. Isn't that a great picture? This iconic rapper weeping in the arms of this iconic poet. For a moment at least, his anger pacified. The rebellious spirit subdued. He was conquered. And how was he conquered? Not by the sword, not by the fist, but by someone telling him, reminding him of the sacrifice that others had made and suffered so that he could be free. If you are anything like me, then in your life, you don't want life to be messy. What you want is you, we want shortcuts. And if you're like me, we, I underestimate the power of grace of real grace to bring about the sort of transformation for which I long both cosmically and personally. But grace is not a shortcut. Grace is the long game. 
Grace is the long-suffering game. It is always messy. It is always unpredictable. It is always slow. But in a world that is enraged, the gospel tells us that grace is the only way that dead things come alive again. Grace is the only way that rebels from the inside out are remade into worshipers. So says the cross of Jesus the Son. So what does that have to do with us? And what does it have to do with us? What does his ethic, his life, his death, his resurrection say about our own life in the world as the church? Well, the final verses give us a few things. The main thing that the final verses tell us, like in verse 12, is that we are to kiss the Son. Do you see that? That's the command. To kiss the Son. And that picture is not a romantic picture of a kiss. That picture is a picture of a civil kiss. It's paying homage to a true king. We are to be loyal to him. We are to look at Jesus and say, your ways, your laws, your rules, they are cords of compassion, and they are bonds of love. So how do we do that? How do we pay homage to Jesus? Let me give you three thoughts this morning briefly, and let your imagination run with them as you leave. First, the church needs to reject cynicism. The people of God, Christians, need to reject cynicism as a mode of sophistication in the world. Look, I know it's an election year. I know who the candidates are. I know all the trends about increasing secularization in the Western world. I know that we look around the world and the world is in turmoil. But the sun is enthroned. Amen? The sun is enthroned and the psalmist says right now, God is not breathing hard. The Son has asked for the nations, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And so the church is supposed to lean into the world, not with fear, not with cynicism, but with hope. Above all else, this is a psalm of hope. Paying homage to the Son means being a people of hope. Number two, kissing the Son means that we go into the world not only with the message of Jesus, but with His methods as well. Not only his message, but his methods as well. And what are the methods of Jesus? What were the methods of Jesus? Well, not the sword, but the cross. Not self-gain, but ultimately self-sacrifice. And would that our first thought be as we leave the church, the sanctuary this morning, how, O Lord, how can I serve my neighbor, though they may be angry, even at me? Oh Lord, what would it look like for me to look at the people who live right next to me and serve them this morning? With this new diploma in hand, high school graduates, college graduates, with all of my gifts and all of my limitations, with all of my positions of power, but also all the ways that I've failed, with all of my life, my children included, and my spouse, how can we be about serving the common good, laying our lives down. May we be as taken by the leadership of Jesus Christ as Washington's soldier was taken with him when he said this, believe me, in the end, I thought not of myself. Wouldn't that be a great way to go out? Believe me, I thought not of myself. Paying homage to Jesus means that we reject cynicism and fear for hope. It also means that we reject the sword for the cross. And finally, paying homage to Jesus, kissing the Son, means that we ultimately treat Jesus as our only refuge. 
Look at the final verse with me this morning. It just says this, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. You know what a refuge is, right? Many of you have refuges, maybe. Maybe you have a little room in your house or another house somewhere that acts as a refuge for you. A refuge is the place where you go to let your hair down, to relax your shoulders. A refuge is the place that you go to rest. A refuge is the place that you can be weak and vulnerable because a refuge, in the refuge, you don't, your, your own security is not your concern. A refuge is a sanctuary. And the point that the psalm makes at the very end of the psalm here this morning is that before you ever, before we ever learn to go out from the sun, we first have to learn to come into the sun. We have to learn what it means not to go to Jesus to ask him what we're supposed to do. Not to go to Jesus to ask him what are the seven steps to being a better fill in the blank. But to go to Jesus and to just rest. To relax your shoulders and to sit there and to let the Son love you. Blessed is he who finds in me a refuge. Have you ever come to the sun? Have you ever come to the sun before? Not to find out what to do, but just to rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my bonds are light. And in me you will find rest for your souls. That is the invitation of the sun this morning. The psalm makes very clear there is no refuge from him. He owns all the nations. There is only refuge in him. Come and find rest in his conquering grace that you might be a means of peace in a hostile world. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us this morning. We thank you that an ancient text is probably 3,000 years old, um, that it still makes sense for us. We thank you most of all, O oh Lord, that you have given us a place of rest, of refuge in your Son. Would you make us a people, your church a people all over the globe that knows both how to come into you and to go out from you. We pray in your name. Amen.